Hi everyone, this is episode eight, and today we have our third guest on the podcast, Cara Gamble, a freelance uh, financial journalist. Hi, Cara. Hello. Hi, Cara. So, how are we all today? How, how are you doing, Cara? In these, are we still on strange and unprecedented times, or we're, we're new normal times now, aren't we? So, how, yeah. How I feel like it's now, yeah, it's becoming normal now. You know, it's, it's, it's just, we, it, the problem is it's, it's uncertain because you don't know how long it's going to go on for. Um, but we're, we're hanging in there. And the sunshine helps. I yes, think. definitely does. Sunshine definitely helps. We had um, a lovely, say like on Friday, we've been a bank holiday, we promised the kids that mummy headmistress would go away and daddy wouldn't mm-hmm. be sort of locked up in the a room. And we just spent time outside in the sun. We're lucky um, to have a garden. And um, it was just really, it was just nice just to do that. Cause uh, you know, it's, it's, I think with a lot of people, all, all parents at the moment, it's, it's incredibly intense having children and trying to work and uh, not, no one being able to escape at any point as well. And just sort of like have maybe even a few minutes with your own head. It's all a little bit intense. But I often feel like I'm trying to- to do two things all day but I'm also I feel like I'm only doing a like a half you know I'm not doing very good yeah. at either one of my jobs so I'm not smashing yeah. it in the homeschool and I'm not doing a lot doing great at work and so now I try and do everything I can in the morning homeschool wise and that takes the pressure off but it's just it's quite stressful but luckily, um, everybody, I think everyone is kind of, you know, this is the new normal. We can't compare ourselves to what our productivity was like, you know, a few months ago. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, I'm a great believer that I worry generally when, when I think something's going well, then mm-hmm. that probably means something else isn't. And more so now than ever. If I think I've cracked homeschooling or work, it definitely means the other one's about to come crashing down. Yeah. That, that kind of general level of, slightly failing at both is about my, my yeah aim. and I, th- I think everybody is like that I like to set my expectations low yeah. then, I'm ple- then I'm pleasantly <laughs> surprised and I feel I'm high-fiving myself at home yeah. here yeah so with that set for the rest of the podcast let's let's try, try. <laughs> it's a great motto um, isn't it yeah, inspirational put that on a t-shirt <laughs> brilliant um so so last week on the podcast we had another guest Steve Gay Casey on uh he took part in our truth or lie feature um so I said that since lockdown had begun, I'd taken up unicycling. Catherine said she'd started playing the flute. And Steve said pre-lockdown, he had not met Kevin Keegan. Now, um, we realised in all of our technical talk that we do on this podcast around medical conditions and insurance, we've forgotten to explain what nutmegged meant. Meant, sorry. So um, for Catherine and others' benefits, um, not not making in football is where you kind of kick the ball through someone's legs and run around the other side. Kevin Keegan was a very good footballer uh-huh. a very long time ago. Um, he says bravely when, with Steve not on the podcast today. <laughs> so, so suffice to say, I was very impressed by Steve's claim, whereas Catherine obviously. <laughs> so, who do you think's telling a lie, Cara? Well, okay, you have said that you've been learning the flute and I have seen you on Twitter playing away. So I know that is correct. Um, and I, considering I didn't know who is Kevin Keegan was, but I assumed that wasn't a member of Steve Casey's household. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, Andrew, you've taken up unicycling and Steve Casey was telling a fib. 
Well, it was actually oh. Andrew that was lying. Now, I have to say, I don't know if you've ever seen Andrew, but he's about eight foot tall. So oh. I think if there was a, un- I don't think there's a unicycle in the land that would be suitable. I think, you know, when you see those people, like the street entertainers, and they suddenly come out with the unicycle, and they're like, look, look how tall it is. It's like 15 foot in the air. He would need that one. Okay, <laughs> it's, hard to, it's, it's hard to tell on a on a Zoom I know. call. You know? I, need, I, I do need waves to subtly. I'm actually sat by the wine rack here. I feel like I should go <laughs> back and reach the top the top bottle. It's, a, it's quite strange meeting new people virtually and not being able to be tall. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's it's um, quite a it's quite a leveler, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Literally, like, yeah. I kind of sit up straight. Um, but yes, so I haven't taken up unicycling. Steve has, at some point in the past, pre-lockdown, not make Kevin Keegan. Oh, pre-lockdown, can, I see. Yeah, which he can impress you. you about in, in a bar at some point post-lockdown. Yeah, well, I'll have to ask all about it then. Yes. I'll have to do my research and find out who Kevin Keegan is. <laughs> I'm, in my defence, I'm Canadian, so nothing. I, I only know anything post-2003. Yeah, okay. I came over. That's that's fine. Also, in my defence, I hate football. So, (laughs) (laughs) you've got three boys. I know rugby, rugby all the way. Oh, okay. Also into cricket. There seems to be a really cricket thing around here, and I've never really done it. Yeah, so apparently they're really into cricket. So, Cara, can you please tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a freelance financial journalist. Uh, I've been working um, in newspapers and magazines um, for I don't know twelve. 14 years, something like that. Um, But I write a lot about protection and the importance of income protection um, because I personally am a massive believer in it, which is kind of unusual for a a younger woman who's not necessarily in the industry. But I grew up in a household with two sick parents and both of them, fortunately, had um, policies in place, which meant that we were able to still you know, live in our home while they were unwell. And both of them retired in their 40s. So it was, you know, quite a long period. Yeah, I know you do quite a lot of it with the Income Protection Task Force. Yes, so I write write a column for the Income Protection Task Force um, every month and work with them um, just trying to get the message out because I feel um, I write a blog as well. It's called Your Best Friend's Guide to Cash. And I think as a journalist, I've, I used to write for the Telegraph and that was, you know, the, the money sections of the newspaper are read by a very specific type of reader. Not necessarily my girlfriends, I have found. Yeah. Um, we don't really have time to read the weekend papers, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but they still need access to um, financial information and tips. So that's why I started at my blog called Your Best Friend's Guide to Cash because it's like I'm explaining it to my friends when we're on a play date type yeah. thing. And so with income protection, I would talk about how I was, you know, I had the insurance, but none of my girlfriends, like literally none of them had it because they would see themselves as not the breadwinner um, and they don't make enough money to cover it. And it's, you know, but they all had life insurance because they were prompted to take that out when they got their mortgage. Yeah. So um, with, through, with the Income Protection Task Force, I've been trying to kind of ex- um, talk about it, but in, uh, you know, a real person's view, if you see what I mean, rather than an industry or an advisor type thing. Absolutely. And that makes sense. So, so, in terms of what happened to you and your story then, Cara, growing up, then um, I guess 
most of us, most people don't go through what you went through. So are you able to talk a bit more about what yeah. happened then and kind of share that experience? Yeah, sure. I think, um, so the funny thing is, is when it's your own life, you don't really know any difference. So I grew up yeah. with sick parents, um, but I'll t- tell you right now, they're both still alive. Um, and they were on a Zoom family phone call last night. Um, my dad's 71. My mom is, I think, 67. Though so she would be vague about that. Um, and so basically, when I was 12 in 1992, my dad was a um, headmaster in a secondary school. And he was giving a presentation at the school board in front of the chief executive and everything and had a heart attack. And he was rushed to the hospital and he was given a very bleak outcome uh, because he was inoperable due to a number of complications. So they pretty much gave him three months to live. Mm. Um, and, you know, I found when I was a child, I found the funeral plans, you know, like it was yeah. as, as you do, you know, when you're 12, I don't know about you, but I used to root through things all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. I was, yeah, I was very nosy. So they didn't leave them out, but I found them. <laughs> um, and so my dad, he ended up being able to have a balloon procedure, like an angioplasty, but that was only kind of like a 50-50 chance, but it was better than nothing. Fortunately, he came through that, but the, um, I actually brought the balloon tube press show and tell once to school because it saved my dad's life. Wow. Um, wow. And yeah, it's kind of random now that I think about it. But he, as a result, he had to have as little stress as possible. So he wasn't able to go back to work because his job was a very stressful job. Um, and that was quite a blow to him. He was 42. He was in his prime. He loved his job. He was passionate about it. He had a real soft spot for at-risk youth. Um, and, but yeah, so he had to stop working. And so at that time, my mom worked, um, she was, she owned a nursery, they called it a preschool in Canada. And, um, she was able to still work at that time. But my dad, I guess it must be quite a blow from when you're kind of the breadwinner to then, you know, start worrying about money. And luckily he had insurance in place that he had taken out when he started teaching, um, for this very kind of thing happening and at the time his friends told him you know Frank you're wasting your money you know you're not why are you throwing your money at that and thank god he did because he his policy paid out until his retirement at 65 and you know I'm I like to say that I can I'm an example of how bad luck can happen but not just once but twice in a household so when my mom was 48 she retired because she has MS and so suddenly I was in, I think, grade 12. And so like just about to leave school and both of my parents were at home working. I mean, it did have a benefit. I got to have breakfast, lunch and supper with my parents every day because mm-hmm. they make you walk home for school in Canada at lunchtime. Oh, right. Yeah. doesn't matter the weather. You better walk on home and walk back <laughs> in an hour, um, like a kilometer each way. And wow. uh, I know, I know that's, I'm going to use that when Audrey complains. when she's <laughs> um, But also, you know, it certainly had its benefits, but from my parents' point of view, it meant that they could actually follow the doctor's orders and do the type of lifestyle that would help their health rather than make it worse. But from my point of view, as a teenager, and as you know, when you're a teenager, it's kind of all about you. Mm. Uh, you're, you're very kind of self well, you don't, you're 12, you know, you don't really know any different. And from my yeah. point of view, it meant that I was able to stay in the family home that I grew up in. We stayed in the same street. So I still had my neighbors because my dad was in and out of hospital a lot for the first couple of years. 
Yeah. And very unexpectedly, you know, he would have an um, angina or something and we, they would have to go. So our neighbors were there to look in on us. My girlfriends, my friends were all around. And so that really provided um, a constant um, support that I needed and probably didn't realize. And also it gave my parents, you know, the peace of mind. They didn't have to worry about paying the bills. Mm. I mean, that sounds sort of like incredible. I don't think I've necessarily thought of it so much, but what really sort of like sounds from what you've said is that, you know, by having the income protection, your dad didn't have to go back to work. So he could follow doctor's orders because if he had gone back, mm-hmm. then the Zoom call yesterday could have been very, very different. You know, yeah. it, you know I mean, yeah. and that's actually really incredible to think of. Well, actually, you know, this is somebody taking this out, but it's another what, 30 years, I think you said, almost yeah. down the line now since he's yeah. actually had the heart attack. I mean, that's, it's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, it was very much a case of where we were always kind of on eggshells. You know, I, cause I, I eavesdropped a lot, you know, bear in mind. So when you have teenagers, keep that in mind, they'll be ear, yeah. eavesdropping and everything. <laughs> and so I probably knew more than my parents thought. Um, but yeah, it was very, you know, it was very touch and go for a long time. And if he had have had to go back, was forced to go back to work because he was worried about providing for our family, um, you know, who knows what could have happened. And, you know, and I say to people like, you know, when I'm explaining why I spend so much on this, because naturally I, I kind of look like I have terrible genetics now on an income protection um, questionnaire, but I, I'm like, Hey, it can, it happened to my family, not once, but twice. Yeah. And, you know, thank God they had the protection in place because my life was largely other than the uncertainty of their health. I was able to still have all of those things that were so important and consistent, which I didn't appreciate now, but as an adult, I look back and say, thank God for that. Yeah. It's a theory without um, stealing your lines, Catherine, I guess it's the theory that protection insurance gives you choices rather than cash. It obviously does give you cash. And sometimes it gives you, increasingly it gives you some benefits to help out as well, but whether it's a, you know, whether it's money, in life insurance or critical illness or income protection, it gives you that time and those options, right, to, for families to not be forced yeah. into rushing back to work or forced into something that... Well, particularly with my mum, because she has um, uh, MS and it's remitting and relapsing. So sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Mm-hmm. She's very fortunate. She's not in a wheelchair or anything, but my parents have always... Um, They've built several houses over the years and they always make them wheelchair accessible, wider mm-hmm. hallways, lower windows, Yeah. Um, just in case. Um, but she's been really fortunate to not be in that position. But what the saying in my family is, um, if you're tired, well, your body, if you need a nap, your body must have needed it. That's what my mom always says. So you never yep. feel bad about having a nap. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and she was, she always says that being able to retire and being in a financial position meant she was able to listen to her body. So if she felt that her symptoms were surfacing and she was on the edge of maybe having a relapse, she was able to like down tools and um, rest herself and at least soften the blow of that mm-hmm. um, reoccurrence. And I think that is worth its weight in gold because you know, it's not even just the money, but it's also her quality of life. Absolutely. You know, she's, you know, I don't know if you've ever been, you know, even when you're sick and your kids are out and you can hear everybody else in the other part of the house, but you're unwell and you're stuck upstairs, that can feel very isolating, I think. Yeah. So being able to prevent that from being longer period 
of being unwell is really good for your mental health as well. And that's priceless. Absolutely. I, I always think, you know, you say with these insurances, yes, the money is obviously very, very helpful. And it allows you then to main, well, to then have a quality of life. And like you said, it's, it's not just your own quality of life. It's your children's quality of life. It's, yeah. it's the rest of the family so that you can all adapt. And um, I think it's sometimes it's that kind of side of it, that, that sort of like edge of the story that people don't necessarily connect with at times. They just think, oh, well, I'm just, I'm going to be paying this much and yeah, it's going to give me back my money, but the state will look after me. And, it's, and you sort of like, you, you, you lose sight sometimes of all the repercussions of what having yeah. a serious illness can have. But I don't know if it's if you've, if you've maybe been brought up with a family that have had, you know, significant illnesses like yourself, where that really stands out. So I've got quite a few things in my medical history as well for my family. And um, so it's always been very, very clear in our minds, you know, that thing of, you know, getting that chance to, if somebody needs to have a, a rest, that do mm -hmm. that. Because if you rest now, then it means that you can carry on for another couple of days. It's, you know, 80% mm -hmm. level rather than just maxing yourself out and being out for two weeks. You know, it's... Well, this is... I always explain it to my daughter who's just turned seven last week. And um, I talk about sleep and rest. It's like the battery on the iPad. <laughs> yeah. And I'm <laughs> like, well, we need, we need to recharge that battery. It's getting low. So you need to go to bed and we need to charge that battery back up to 100%. And if you sleep, if you go to bed at eight o'clock, you'll get to 100% by the morning. But if you are still up running around at 10 o'clock, then you'll only get to 70% and you'll run out of puff earlier. And for some reason that kind of works when you put it into like that kind of context. But for this, it's the same as for anything. And I think if you're not worried about having to keep the roof over your head and keep food on the table, um, you can actually allow yourself. And I think like if you'll see my dad, um, and my mom, they look great. Like they have, they have been able to do what the doctor said. Like they are excellent examples of my sister's a GP and she says that mom and dad are perfect patients. I think that's largely down to my mother's, uh, iron fist, but, <laughs> um, you know, they do what they're told. She said they're a doctor's dream because they actually follow their advice. And, but you know what? My dad is 71 years old now. And he is there. He has three grandchildren. And yeah, he looks great. So I just posted a picture of them on Instagram last night. And I was looking at my dad and like, my God, I hope I look that healthy and happy. If I've, you know, found myself living with a long term health condition for 30 years. Yeah. So and that's yeah, because think, he was able to rest. Yeah. And there's a, it emphasizes, doesn't it? There's a big gap between not being able to work and not being able to have a fruitful and enjoyable and effective life. Um, yeah. I think that often gets lost in, understandably, in the need for simple messaging and simple case studies and things like that. Um, yeah. You kind of have that. I do think at the moment, I notice that the conversations are um, popping up more since lockdown has happened and with coronavirus. Um, you know, people are suddenly worried about their income. You know, people are being furloughed, people are losing their jobs. I live very near to an airport um, and the air industry is just, you know, it's crumbling and mm -hmm. that's going to have a knock on effect um, in my local area. And so suddenly I'm like, okay, well, if we can, if you can get through this, but let this be a lesson that if suddenly the, the bottom falls out of how you bring home your money, you could have a backup plan, you know, let that, 
because it's very there you know statistically you're more likely to need to be become critically ill or have a long-term health condition than you are to necessarily claim on your um, life insurance and also in your life insurance you're not going to reap the benefits of yeah. that. Yeah. You know, like it's all well and good to have to not leave your, you know, it's important to not leave people, um, you know, in a rough financial situation when you die, but you know, life is for living and you yeah. want to make sure that you are able to do that as long as you can, as, as easily as you can. It's interesting saying that as well, because I did an online test and I can't remember the exact figures, but it was on an insurance website where you can test sort of, how likely it is you are going to claim on these insurances. And I think, obviously, I mean, I've, I've got everything. Um, but I think my life insurance, it was something like 3% chance I was going to claim on it. But um, I think it was the income protection. It was something like 70%, 60 70% of mm-hmm. me being, you know, potential for me to claim on it. And it was just a case of, okay, yeah, you're actually looking at statistics and medically, you know, that information that's sort of like funded into that. But um, talk about like the case study and stuff like that. So, um, very closely linked to the income protection task force because the seven families work yes. mm-hmm. and um just there's a couple of them and it actually fits in really nicely with what you're saying about that kind of obviously for your for your dad it was stopping work and listening to medical professionals but for someone else where they were able to maybe gradually reintegrate back into work but again purely at the medical professionals um sort of guidance so for anybody who isn't familiar so seven families um was um sort of an initiative that came about where a group of insurers decided to provide uh, about 12 months income and all the support services you would get with an income protection policy if they had had it um, when they were diagnosed with certain things. Um, so feeding on as well from last time when we talked about strokes with Steve Casey, I was looking at one of them and it was saying that um, it was a gentleman called Graeme Snell and he was a double stroke survivor and it happened in July 2014. Um, and it always surprised me that someone has a stroke in the UK every five minutes. I think that's really a, a huge, huge statistic. But for him, he obviously got access to all these different things and to the funds and his income protection. But what he said was that the main thing was that it allowed him to focus upon his health and the rehabilitation, the getting the better. He didn't have to try to rush back to work too soon. He was able to just not struggle financially and just really take that time to focus upon him. It gave him access to things like the Red Arc nurses and support groups that are to provide the, obviously the medical support, but the emotional support. Cause he said that for him as well, he felt really guilty that he wasn't more ill because even though he'd had a double stroke, he was actually coming out of it quite favorably really physically compared to a lot of people in that situation that was something that Steve said as well last time that he felt quite guilty in a sense that and it really shocked him when he could see all the people in the stroke ward compared to him and he was there like wow I've I've really dodged the bullet here kind of thing Um, but for Graham he was able to begin some voluntary work alongside obviously being able to have this kind of financial support and it allowed him to go back into the work environment again to test it to see how his stress levels were and to not worry still about that financial side losing that financial support and just to test it see if it was the right time and then maybe step back if you needed to or test it and just that you know what this is just I can't I just can't simply go back and for him he was able to do something where he trained he was able to take the time to train as a trainer for his profession. So no longer being the professional in, in the occupation that he was, but to be the trainer of that, of people who are going to be eventually become him in a sense. So he was able to adapt and carry on. And I think that fits in really quite nicely with what you were saying, Cara, about that whole thing of just 
people being able it's not just the financial thing even more so probably than, than the financial thing it's that support to actually do what your body needs it to do to recover yes and I think I mean with my because my parents um, became unwell in the 90s um, there were kind of I don't know it's, I think it's become more advanced the extra the value-added benefits that are available today um, but when you say about you know, volunteering, for instance. So my dad, you know, he was 42. Mentally, he was, you know, fine. It's his, it was his body that let him down. He's a very intelligent man, several master's degrees. You know, he had a lot to offer. And over time, um, he was able to, because he, he could pace himself, he volunteers, he's on all these committees. He raises money for the children's um, burn uh, unit at the hospital and he he's, he's just doing something all the time my mom thinks it's great because it gets him out of the house a bit um although not during lockdown that's a different story but um he's able to feel like he's giving back in a way even though again it was it's that's unpaid but it gives him a bit of a little bit of a structure to his week he feels like he's using his um mental capacity um, and I think that's been really good for him, um, you know, his, his mental health, but he's been able to do that slowly over time and kind of take baby steps and see what he can do and what, what his limits are, I guess. And I think that that must be a really, I never really thought about it until he just kind of mentioned it. We just joked that it, it keeps him out of mom's hair for a bit, but you know, that must've, that must've been for a man at that age, it, you know, he was, it must've been really, really difficult to not kind of use his skills. Yes. Like, you know, I'm sure that must lead to all sorts of problems for people with depression and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, I think intuitively it's where we can have an honest conversation with customers that there is a shared aim in the first instance to get, the person back to work and that's in you know that's in the insurer's financial interests initially mm. and it's in and it's in the person's interest because generally um it, in most situations it's good for the individual socially etc to get back to work but then with all of those benefits and services and the financial side of things that are there then it does come back to this it enables choice and it enables those options even where at some point you say well this work isn't going to be right or appropriate for that person. And I think, you know, yeah. my mum's a teacher as well. And absolutely, there's clearly a different level there um, that, than there may be for other occupations. Well, I think, um, I, so I wrote an article for um, the Protection Task Force this month about value-added benefits. I spoke to you, Catherine, about it. Yeah. Um, because I think at the moment, um, you know, I, I got an email from my broker being like, did you know that you have access to 24 hours a day, seven days a week GP services? I didn't know that. I write about income protection all the time. I'm a columnist for the task force, but I never really kind of thought about that. And because right now at the moment, we're reluctant to kind of go to our GP because, you know, it's, well, we also think, well, it's not that bad, you know, I can wait, but you know, you might need advice or whatever. And so there's all of these resources available that I didn't realize. So I wrote about that, but then it got me thinking at the time is back in the day when I worked at the Telegraph, I have, um, I have like 
uh, hyperflexible joints. Oh, uh, hi, oh, no. I'm a hypermobile. Yeah, oh, so hey, don't start, Andrew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have hyper. I'm hyper I know I'm hypermobile as well. It was a nightmare. Yay. Yes, um, it is. And so, but because I was writing like you know five thousand oh. words a week. Um, but my big thing, it's my hand, it's my thumb, because I have a really um, flexible thumb. Yeah. Uh, and then I ended up having really bad repetitive strain, mm -hmm. and my hands would swell up, and I would, like, have to hold them. And that's a problem. These are, I used to joke, I'm like, these are my tools, yeah. my hands. But that is how I did my job. If I can't type, but it turns out, you know, I, ha I use a, a pen instead of a mouse, and I have an armrest, and I have all of these things to enable myself um, to continue to work but I'm freelance so I don't do as much now yeah. as I did but while I was there I had access to um, on-site physiotherapy at, in the office so I was able to um, have someone help me with my um, hands help set up the desk and enable me to continue to do my job and which is what I wanted to do I didn't not want to work mm. um, and I think that you know how many years on has that been it's you know, 10 and 12 years since that all became a problem and I'm still working, I'm still contributing, mm. I'm earning. And that's something just as simple as my hands were so pain. I couldn't sleep at night. They would be so painful. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that's such, yeah. that is worth it in itself. And with the value added benefits, you have access to physiotherapy and which you don't when you're a freelancer. Like I don't have a physiotherapist in my home office. Yeah. I think that's really important, isn't it? That, so I've, I've moved from corporate to self-employed four years yeah. ago, five years mm -hmm. ago now. Um, and absolutely, as with you guys, even, even though we should know better, et cetera, let's start with any statement we make in this whole area, it's still kind of you don't quite realise what you've lost and in terms of, I don't know, EAP things and some of those physio things and whatever until mm -hmm. you, until so you, you don't have it slightly anymore. wrong and you don't have it anymore, absolutely. And you go, well gosh, how on earth can I get that? Um, and, and it is, it's surprising how underplayed some of those things are. Well, I think. Uh, certainly I've had in the past where I was undergoing um, tests and diagnoses last year and it was taking so long and it was going on, going on. It turned out it was all fine. But mm. um, I could have had access to second opinions through mm -hmm. my, um, my income protection. Like I and I looked back and I thought, my goodness, that could have made a very stressful situation far less stressful. And I often say, as a, as a person who's self-employed, I was seeing several different departments in the hospital. And in one week, I was at four different hospital appointments on four different days. And I only work around my daughter's school hours. So that was four of my five days shot. And how much money did I lose? doing that you know you start yeah. to when you're self-employed you start thinking of the time you're out of the office in very real terms because you can see what what you're invoicing is not yeah. very high and, and so that's that would have really you know if i had been able to speak to someone to get a second opinion that might have hurried up that whole procedure yeah and we don't it's it's difficult to make predictions at the moment about anything, but I think one certain thing is there will be more people going into self-employment in the next 12 yeah. to 18 months, whether through choice and dreams and vision of this wonderful life that they're currently living, or probably more realistically, no necessity choice. having yeah. been, been made redundant and, and trying something new. And I, think I do think... People, 
that um, particularly women are um, very affected by this because the extortionate cost of childcare means a lot of um, women have been put in a position that they say, well, shall I stay in the work in my office job or, you know, should I try and go and do it on my own and work flexibly? And, um, and I think that that's when you lose, you know, your death and service benefits, you lose your, all these other things you probably kind of take for granted. And suddenly you think, well, I don't really make that much money. Do I really need to cover my income? But I found this really handy. Um, I mean, it certainly wasn't when I was trying to make a point to um, my daughter's father about how much unpaid um, childcare I provide and whatnot. You know how every now and then you're like, I do the laundry and I do this, I do that. Yes. And um, the Office of National Statistics has a thing where you can calculate, an online tool where you can calculate how many hours do you provide childcare and how many, you know, the laundry, the cooking, the cleaning, whatnot. And then you can calculate what that would be worth in money. Oh, and very nice. So if you had to replace that, so if I became incapacitated and was unable to provide that child care, you know, before my husband and I separated, he would have been at home and trying to work full time, but then he would be trying to fill the child care provision that I was, you know, had been doing and mm. at a cost. And so you know, it's kind of, you can't just look at what you're earning on in money, monetary values. I think it's what you're providing for free that would have, somebody would have to be paid to do if you couldn't do it. Mm. Absolutely. I think it's, it's important to mention that the, the value added benefits or support services, whatever it is that we should be calling them, um, kick in once you get any policy. So it's not a case of yeah, so, so even if you can only afford a, a relatively small amount of income protection, you then get the raft of these other things as well. I think often, still, for all of the good chat, it's a whole other podcast, kind of how long, why, why people don't buy income protection or disability income products more. Um, and obviously, I guess this is one of the efforts to, to change that. But I think often it does count, come down to cost if you're trying to protect the perfect thing, but to, to start with a relatively small amount that would protect something does get you all of this stuff. Um, that I think seven, seven families really pulled out was, was at least as important as the money. Well, yes. I mean, I've um, met I've, with several of the families in the seven mm -hmm. families campaign and Tracy Clark, for instance, um, she lost her vision over a very short period of time um, and was in, unable to do her um, job. And she, says oh, over and over that it was the additional support that was almost better value to her because she still wanted to be able to live a life and she had to suddenly learn how to do that without her vision mm. and so she you know and she had the right experts that were to hand that were able to help her learn how to use technology in a different way and you know, those, if you don't have access to that, that the day can be very long, you know, yes. if you don't have the things that make you happy. Um, and I think a lot of people tend to think, well, you just think about cancer or heart attacks or strokes, but there are so many ways that you can be unwell, but you still want to be able to try and live your life as, you know, as happily as you can. And if support is going to help do that, then, I mean, that's priceless, really.
Absolutely. I think what's good as well, the seven families and linking back to something we've said as well, is that they um, offer this how invincible are you quiz? And it's sort of like quite a light version, not too intensive for anybody who wants to be involved in everything. So you can do it. It's a few questions just to see sort of like how financially invincible um, you are. So, Andrew, I think you've possibly got a few things that you wanted to talk about in regards to income protection and the dreaded C word um, at the moment. Yeah, we can't avoid it. So, and I think certainly initially income protection was probably the focus around insurance and coronavirus um, for pretty obvious reasons, I think. Um, and there were movements made by insurers in that initial phase for especially for sh very short term income protection. So most people who have income protection would have income protection that starts paying when you've been off work for maybe three months. So D13 policies, 13 week deferment periods lots of jargon there i'm sorry um, but basically you have to work for three months before things pay but there are also income protection policies that start paying when you've been off literally for one day or one week or four weeks and so quite a few of those shorter term income protection policies you now can't buy at the moment or have a specific coronavirus exclusion on if you had an income protection policy bought certainly before this year then there's no change to the terms and conditions of those policies and you can still claim if you're off work for any reason, coronavirus or anything else, um, and those pay. So I think as, as with any of these things, if, it's out, if you've got insurance already and you think you might have a claim, you're always best to call your advisor or the insurer um, and, and discuss those things, but there's certainly no change to existing policies that's, that's, that's gone into place. I think a big um, thing... Sorry, a big thing that I tend to mention to readers often is that if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. So you, you might have these policies in place, but they're there for you to use. That's why you buy them. So pick up the phone or, you know, do an online chat and just see what is available to help you. The worst case scenario, nothing at that point, maybe. Mm. But you might be able to get some kind of support you may not realize and it's always worth a try. So if you don't contact them, you're not going to know. Absolutely. And I think certainly, again, with even the longer term periods to payment, the insurer, back to the practical, the insurer would want to know as soon as possible so that they can help you. And they'd rather pay for three physio sessions for your back or for your thumb than wait six months, by which point you haven't been working for six months and there's much harder hurdles. So, so absolutely, I think the get in touch message is always right and get in touch as early as you can um, is, is, is absolutely key. Um, and yeah, then I think then we're looking almost as insurers are now probably with what, two months in, and I think there is now beginning to be more looking, more time to look ahead more positively and think about this changing world and looking to what products might come next and might better fit the needs of people's changed expectations. And some of that speaks to self-employment. Um, some speaks to this kind of blurring of lines, I think, between medical and economic reality. Um, so it'll be a while till we see those new products, but I think every insurer is now looking around this area. So if you have good ideas, whether or not you work in an insurer, an advisor, or just chance upon this podcast and it's a really good time I think to speak up with those because it it's a you know it's all up it's all up in the air um, and will continue to be for a few months 
So we're at that stage of the podcast now where we come to our famous uh, Truth or Lie feature. And we're going to do a mix. Obviously, we had Steve on last time. We've got Car on this time, which is fantastic. So now we're going to start it off by saying that my favorite family game is Taboo. Okay, so I'll go. Um, my our favorite family game is Mario Kart. Okay, and my favorite game uh, to play with my family is Twister. So there you go, everybody. We have to try and figure out uh, which one of us is telling a lie. But I want to say um, thank you, obviously, to everybody for listening. And thank you, Cara, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. It's been lovely to speak with you, hear about, obviously, your real experiences where income protection has obviously been extremely very very powerfully important to you and your family if anybody does have any questions at all or wants to discuss anything please do send us a message yeah thank you so much cara we catherine and i will be back in two weeks so if you want a reminder of the next episode then please do drop us a message on social media or visit our website www.practical-protection.co.uk and we're always keen to hear what you like uh, what you don't like Andrew likes to hear what you don't like. Yeah, I like the challenge. Um, <laughs> we are really, it, it genuinely does keep us going. I think each time we, we kind of hear different things from, from very different people, which, which is really good to know that it's, it's reaching uh, deep into the barrels of insurers and advisors and, and, and all that stuff. So thank you for getting in touch. And um, yeah, have a good couple of weeks and we'll speak to you all soon. Thank you. Thank you, Cara. Thank Bye. you. Bye.